I've been asked to speak on the topic of faithful to love, faithful to love. And they asked me to speak because Ligon Duncan is my uncle. I'm, I'm kidding, he's not. But I announced that just to prevent the question because it happens to me a lot. I, I wish, for various reasons, I would be remiss if I didn't mention what we've all been through together so far. Just this first day of the conference to hear those two messages, first on the priority of humility in faithfulness was to leave us quite undone, at least in my experience. And then Dr. Ferguson, thank you so much for leading us through that passage and rendering us even more uh, filleted by the Word of God. I mean, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to preach right now. Uh, that was superb on every level and so convicting. Uh, please open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. It was either that or the Song of Solomon. <laughs> I like being employed, so we'll go 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> Easier to get groceries that way. I'm going to begin by reading to you the whole passage. We'll really look at verses one through eight. You know this chapter, it's so familiar to you. But I pray you'd hear it afresh. 1231 says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. 
but the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Faithful to love. We want to be faithful ministers, faithful pastors. And when I was assigned the topic of being faithful to love, first thing that came to my heart was 1 Corinthians 13, because this chapter is not only famous, it was read at Princess Diana's funeral, Barack Obama quoted it at his inauguration. It's been on every single wedding that you've ever officiated. Your grandmothers all cross-stitched this stuff. It's so famous. It's so familiar. Its poetic beauty is, is legendary. Phil Riken calls an iconium of love. But 1 Corinthians 13, to me, is not very lovely. I find it absolutely devastating. So often it's pulled out of its context. It's turned into some kind of Hallmark card. But if we can work through it this afternoon, what I think we can understand as, as pastors who want to be faithful in the way that we love, that this chapter will engage in a careful critique of ourselves. And it'll encourage us to be faithful to love. Our love is so imperfect. Our love for God, our love for his flock, our love for lost people, all falls woefully short. And as we heard this morning in the message from chapter four about the priority of humility and faithfulness, so clearly displayed in the Apostle's angst as he corresponds with his beloved Corinthians who have fallen so far afoul of faithfulness. He wants to bring them back. This chapter is no interruption at all. It contains the word agape ten times, but it isn't a parenthesis even. It's a prerequisite for ministers to understand. You see, the Corinthians were out of step and out of sorts. Sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers, factiousness, doctrinal over-exuberance and laxity simultaneously in the same congregation. Things in Corinth were a mess. And Paul wanted them to understand that they couldn't have their church in order or their services in order, chapter 12 through 14, unless their love life was right. I came to California, California's distant shores from a land called New Mexico, which is neither new nor Mexico, 14 years ago and came on staff at this church and, and I came here to go to seminary. I wanted to learn how to handle the word of God with precision and I saw in Pastor MacArthur an example of that. I had no idea how much I would learn about holding carefully the word of God from that man as I've sat there with my family and watched my kids grow up and stayed far longer than I ever imagined. 
To sit under his teaching is to learn a lesson in hermeneutics, to learn a lesson in biblical precision as he holds that Bible so carefully and proclaims it so boldly. The lesson I didn't realize that I came to learn was that of pastoral affection. If you know him, as some of the men said on the video this morning, you know that he's a man who leads with love. He was speaking in our pastoral ministry class just a few semesters ago. And as he's prone to do, off, off the cuff, his sentences, he doesn't even have to compose them in advance. They just come out and uh, they're, they're better than anything I could write working a week on it. He just said, in response to some seminarian's question, and seminarians don't ask good questions, <laughs> he said, every problem our church has ever faced can be traced back to a lack of love because love is a bond of peace. And I think that is so helpful. And I think 1 Corinthians 13 is so convicting as we go under the scalpel yet again, reminded already today that we need humility and we need holiness, but we also need to learn to lead with love. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to stay at altitude. There's a lot in here, and I know you're familiar with it. But let's think about the nature of pastoral affection in four parts. Starting in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. I think the best way to, to just dive into this is say, love's essential nature. You know this passage. Love's essential nature is presented to us in verses 1 through 3. What does it say? Well, Paul has already told them that he's going to show them a better way, a more excellent way. And in that paragraph, he has changed his tense to put himself as the example. And by using this personal pronoun, I will show you a more excellent way, he now puts his own gifts on the examination table. He puts himself forward as exhibit A. And in a subjunctive kind of a way, says in verse 1 of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Paul immediately brings the focus that the Corinthians had on the extravagant gifts into a more realistic focus. There was a lot going on in Corinth with false gifts, with prophecy, and with tongues. And there was a special interest in the gift of tongues. There was a lot of fakers. There was a lot of inauthentic practices. And so Paul at the outset puts his own gift as the example to start with. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. This isn't a random person in the congregation. This isn't a sinful person uh, that's been addressed in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the Apostle Paul, the one who was there with them for 18 months, who founded them, their missionary, their pastor, their beloved apostle. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. In other words, Paul is imagining a scenario where his words are absolutely perfect. That every human language has been apprehended by the apostle. That he can speak with fluidity and fluency to anyone about anything and that's where he starts. 
And if that were not enough, he elevates it to this concept of, and the tongues of angels. Not even the MacArthur Study Bible knows what the tongues of angels are. It's a hyperbolic way of saying whether I spoke of any language known to man or an angelic language, uh, another particular interest of the Corinthians, the, the angels and their presence there. He tells them, but if I do so without love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. That's remarkable, isn't it? Can you imagine being able to speak perfectly? To have a command of language or languages unto even the heights of heaven. How much better would your sermon be? What kind of book contracts would you sign if you could use language like this? But what the apostle is saying is that if he were to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if he were to do so without love, then his speech would be the equivalent of resounding gongs or clanging cymbals. Most likely a reference to that pagan temple of Aphrodite just outside of Corinth, where resounding gongs would rouse worshipers to the false goddess of love. A clanging and obnoxious sound would be in their ears. What he's saying is that no matter what you say, if it is said apart from love, that that speech is truly and basically offensive. That's the message of verse one. Do you think of lovelessness that way? When you compose a sermon, do you write it with love towards your congregation? Are you aware of the heartbeat behind the apostle as he has addressed these churches when he says things like in Philippians 1a, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, being affectionately desirous of you because you had become so dear to us, he says to the Thessalonians. Or again to the Philippians, my brothers who I love and, and long for. When Paul spoke, he knew that truth must be mingled with love. It's why he told the Ephesians that they were to speak the truth in love. Lovelessness is offensive. And these Corinthians were snobby and factionalized and conflicted and selfish and experts at spiritual one-upmanship. And in their local church, they valued words. They appreciated Apollos' teaching and Paul's teaching and Peter's teaching and the really spiritual ones liked Jesus' teaching the most. But what he had to press on them and what I think is pressed on us in this passage is how deeply our words need to be matched by love or they will be as loud and noisy and obnoxious as a gong. A room like this is representing a lot of different musical tastes. You can tell there's a lot of gangster rap fans in here. But some of you like the symphony. Some of you like uh, bluegrass. May God have mercy on your sin-sick souls. I don't think anybody has a cymbal track on their iPhone. Nobody's drifting off to sleep listening to the gong. It's because it's annoying 
And we all get annoyed, don't we? Your neighbor's dog is barking. People are falling asleep during your sermons at church. What is it that annoys you, pastor? The guy who wears the Bluetooth all the time. Redundant phrases like ATM machine. Clipping your nails in public. I could go on. There's, there's a lot of things that annoy us, right? What of lovelessness? Is it as annoying to you as all those quirks? Lovelessness is repellent. It's offensive. It's intolerable. It's disgusting. It's incongruent. It's detrimental. And it ought to be right to our ears as soon as we hear words apart from love obnoxious. That's what verse 1 is saying. Lovelessness is offensive. Verse 2, he elaborates, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So this loveless person now is not only speaking, but the emptiness is now portrayed in an expression of spiritual giftedness, significant spiritual giftedness, prophetic powers, and an understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith, faith so as to move a mountain, but have not love, I am nothing. He first mentions prophetic powers. As an apostle, this was significant to him. This is employed as he's ministering under inspiration, writing this very letter you hold in your lap. Prophetic powers were the giving of divine revelation, the foretelling and forthtelling of the word of God. He causes us to imagine what loveless prophecy might be like. He speaks of understanding or to know all mysteries this is a comprehensive unfolding of the revelation of the gospel. This is to have Deuteronomy 28 and to be able to disprove it. The secret things belong to God. Not for this character. The person imagined here has all prophetic powers and knows all mysteries. This guy has Burkhoff. This guy has all of it. He's got the theological acumen of the greatest theologians who have ever lived. Can you imagine how fruitful that would be? To be able to unwind and explain any theological issue in a moment. That's what he imagines. Can you imagine how useful you would be? Useful to your congregation useful to your kids when they ask you those difficult questions. To know it all, the apostle says, is of no value. It's empty. He says, all faith so as to remove mountains. Thistleton comments, an especially robust, infectious, bold, trustful faith that performs a special task. So not only does he have the ability to speak on behalf of God and a full comprehension of the things of God, he can act on these things. This is 
faith that's performative, faith that is in action, in light of all knowledge, in light of the prophecy, a faith that can result in massive movements of the power of God. You think he's being hyperbolic, right? A typical preacher, a prophetic gift like this, this kind of understanding of mystery, this kind of knowledge, this kind of faith, there must be some value to it, but verse three says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, I have not love, I gain nothing. You see, even as we move through this opening paragraph, everything that he points at leads to and ends with nothing. The the hyperbole must be here. I mean, to know this much, you would have to have some value, at least at Q&A. I mean, moving mountains is of some benefit. Foretelling the word of God, how is this all to nothing? Revelation, knowledge, tongues, teaching, helps, all these gifts. Is what Paul's saying is that our abilities and our gifts would be greatly diminished if we're not loving like God says we should love? That's not what he's saying. It's not a diminishment. It doesn't slow us down. What Paul says is that there's no love, there's no value. Verse one is offensive. Verse two is empty. Verse three is gainless. Even the issue of self-sacrifice to the point of martyrdom in verse three, give all I possess to the poor, a complete divestment of everything, surrender my body to the flames, have not love, I gain nothing. Two examples of self-sacrifice, one grand act of benevolence and selfless divestment to give everything away, to hand over his body to be burned. There must be merit here. There must be value here. There must be gain here in all this self-sacrifice. But he says it all comes to nothing. Jerry Bridges illustrated this by telling his listeners to write zeros in their notebook, as many as they'd like, line after line and page after page, if you'd like. All those zeros add up to nothing apart from that initial integer. And that value here is love. These are divine mathematics that no matter how gifted you are, no matter how much you have to say, no matter how smart and how theological and how uh, much bold faith you may have, if you operate in ministry apart from love, your ministry is of zero value. Pastors, what is it that you'd be willing to undertake without love? I hope it's nothing. The more excellent way reminds us that undergirding all the works and wisdom that God has granted to each of us according to his providence is a necessary affection that Christians are called to and especially leaders are called to model and show to not have love in ministry is to have a ministry that's empty and gainless and of no value. This is the very beginning of his expose. Edwards 
preached a lot of the Bible. But only once did Jonathan Edwards preach a consecutive exposition, verse by verse by verse, and that was in 1 Corinthians 13. We have those sermons collected, charity and its fruits, we call it. It's some of his finest work. Edwards says that love is the most insisted upon virtue in all of the New Testament. He goes on to describe how significant it is for us to operate in the spirit of Christian love. That apart from Christian love, that our works and our words and our service and our efforts in faith are of no value because that's exactly what these three verses say. And though we want to soften them and diminish them and say things like, you know, I, I love you, but I don't like you. The true heart of a pastor is a heart that loves people, that cares about people, that longs to see them transformed to the likeness of Christ and feels that apostolic affection like the Apostle Paul felt for these churches. How God needs to work this kind of love in those of us who are so committed to telling the truth. But so often, our words come apart from any discernible grace, any kind of charity, any kind of love. Love's essential nature sets us up to see that we must be men who lead with love. And love is so misunderstood and so maligned in our culture. Decades ago, Leon, Leon Morris said that there's been so many atrocities committed in the name of love. And how much more true is that today? Our culture has completely flipped upside down in its understanding of gender and morality and marriage, all under the banner of love wins. And here we are saying that we're the ones who understand biblical love, but if we communicate without love in our hearts, without love on our lips, if we minister apart from this kind of affection, it's empty and it's gainless and it's void. And so he continues. Verse four is the beginning of a long list. 15 words in verbal form that he uses to describe love. Not to define it, but to describe it. He tells us what love is like and really what love does. And if you look at this list very long, you notice that there's an arrangement to it, that the two first mentions are set apart in the positive and then there's eight negative words listed. And then there's couplets, four of them, with the word all at the end. And that's what we need to see here. This next section is helping us understand how we need to describe love at the outset. If love is essential for ministry, if there's nothing we should undertake apart from love, well, what does this love act like? Well, verse 4 shows us love's leading qualities. When you think about love, what's the first thing you think of? 
The answer, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is love is patient and love is kind. Let's think about these two words. Love's leading qualities are these words, patience and kindness. That word patience is such a a beautiful and important word in the New Testament, usually reserved for a description of God, macrothumia. It's a strange word for patience because when we think of patience, we think of waiting in long lines for lunch at Shepherd's Conference. We think of the DMV, things like that. The biblical word for patient is patient towards people. It has to do with suffering offense, macro through me. It's a, a large capacity to endure suffering. It's a word often describing God. The King James has an excellent translation of this word by calling it long-suffering. Pastor, are you patient with people? You preach the sovereignty of God, that it's God who gets all the glory for bringing them to himself. Do you trust the sovereignty of God as he works in his people? People will do you wrong with their words and with your actions, with their actions. It will not always go well for you, but if you have this kind of long suffering, you will be patient without reaction. One author translates it, love waits patiently. Love's patience is a virtue that reminds us that love is really tested when people treat us in a way that we don't think we deserve to be treated. Y'all catechize your kids, do you? Love you, Presbyterians. Thanks for the catechisms. We're grateful. It's the Q&A, if you don't know. It's a way of teaching kids theology. You ask the kid, what's the chief end of man? And he answers, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's a family in our church who tells a story of their catechized children being at the grocery store one day. And as they were behaving particularly badly, as children tend to do because of Adam, they approach the checkout, that final tunnel of temptation where things kids' wants are placed right at eye level. And the kids asked their mother, these catechized children asked their mother, oh, can we get a treat? And she, out of patience, said to them, do you think you really deserve a treat after the way you've been acting? And they responded, all we deserve is the wrath and curse of God. <laughs> Those children are not wrong. <laughs> A cashier, I'm sure, was horrified. <laughs> We're unable to suffer very long if we think we deserve very much. And so first off in love's leading qualities is love is patient. The second word's an interesting one because we undervalue this word. Love is kind. 
Reichen calls it a seemingly slender word. I have a kindergartner in my house. It's a weird way of talking about my children, but I have a kindergartner, and they teach them in class to be kind, not kick each other, in other words. That kind of treatment of the word kind is usually as far as we go with it. It seems something so insignificant, so minor. It's a small gesture. But that is not how the Bible describes kindness. Kindness coupled with patience, you'll find in the book of Romans and Titus chapter 3, are the ingredients that are the motivation in the heart of God to bring us to salvation. When the kindness of God our Savior appeared. There's kindness and appeared is patience because every part of your life before you knew Christ was a demonstration of the outstanding patience of God because we really do deserve the wrath and curse of Almighty God and he's been patient with us and because of his extraordinary kindness, he gives us his son And so when we think about love's patience and love's kindness, it's other-centeredness, this pleasant and thoughtful demeanor towards another that treats them in a way beyond what they deserve, treats them with gentleness and compassion. Love lived out in kindness. It's not a slender virtue at all. Love is patient and love is kind. Pastors who lead with love should be patient and kind like the God who drew them to himself. It's love's leading qualities. Third, and this is verses four through six, we see love's greatest restraints. And rather than love being this ultimate permissive attribute. In other words, I left my family, the man says, because I fell in love with someone else. That's how our culture uses the word love. Love is this blanket forgiveness, whatever you want to do, whatever you think you are, whatever you can possibly have within your appetites, as long as you chalk it up with love, This world will sign off on it. Nothing could be further than this biblical description of love because the majority of this section, this beautiful description of love, tells us exactly what love will never do, love's greatest restraints, the non-practices of love. Love positively is patient and kind, but look what love refuses to do. And we'll look at each quickly. It does not envy and it does not boast. These first two words in the negative speak of love's restraint in the face of success. The first one is success in others. How do you feel, pastor, serving faithfully in your church for those decades when the young minister with cool hair and tight clothes plants a church in the middle school two blocks from your church because it's an unreached area. (laughs) 
I love you, church planners. And not only that, they need to borrow your parking lot. Love does not envy. It's a word to speak of. I mean, two, two parts of the Decalogue come together in envy. And it's a word that's so connected to how we think about success in others. When someone else gets what we want, how do we respond? Well, love responds with gratitude for the blessing of God on that person. A confidence in God's sovereignty as he apportions to each one as he wills. Whether it's gifts or blessing or prosperity, love does not envy when it sees success in someone else. The next word is boastful, another word about success, except now it's come your way. How do you feel when you experience the blessing of God? Do you seek after compliments or are you content with no attention? We can envy when we see success in others and we can be boastful when we see success in ourselves, but neither reaction will be reflective of biblical love. This was Jesus' indictment of the religious leaders of his day. Remember what he said about them? They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Love does not envy and love does not boast. And really that's because love is not, the next word, arrogant. Love is not arrogant. Again, Thistleton, love does not inflate its own importance. And the apostles already taught this to the Corinthians in chapter 8, verse 1, in an onomatopoetic way when he said to them that knowledge has a tendency to puffeth up. The Greek word sounds just like putting air in a balloon. Just to remind them by way of all that they thought they knew, these Corinthians and their affection for the super apostles and their, their criticism of the apostle Paul, they knew so much. They were expert armchair theologians and he wanted to remind them that knowledge has a tendency to puff up. We love knowledge, don't we? Knowledge is a good thing. These pastors at this conference are filling their bags with books. Books and books and books of knowledge. If those books and that knowledge gained from those books is not accompanied by love, the puffing up will not be accompanied by the building up that comes with love. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. The arrogant man inflates his own importance. He has no regard for other people. He's selfish. And that makes him, the next word, rude. And rude is such an interesting word, another word we use with our kids so often. And it is a word that means just like our word does, rude, ill-mannered impropriety. This is a regard for others, a concern to not give offense, to defer to others. 
And it's a, it's a wide word. It could be inclusive, and it's used in the New Testament uh, of everything from the way the Corinthians behaved at the Lord's table in their pushing and in their shoving to uh, sexual immorality. Anything that demeans another person, anything that would be considered shameful behavior, treating people poorly, love has, one says, no ill-mannered impropriety. Love is not rude. Likewise, love is not selfish. Again, the King James, love seeketh not her own. Edwards says it this way, the spirit of Christian love is the opposite of a selfish spirit. I mean, we're all engaged in self-interest. That's why we open doors with our hands instead of our teeth. We all look out for ourselves. Even God tells us to love our neighbor as we do ourselves. But there is a kind of selfishness that we all know and that we've all fought that puts what we want and what we desire before that other person. And all the married men say amen. Selfishness truly is the opposite of a Christian spirit, the opposite of the expression of love. Luther famously said, that he didn't fear all the popes and all the cardinals, all the cardinals and all the pope, they usually keep them one at a time, except for one instance. He didn't fear all the cardinals and the pope, he said, because he knew that in his heart was the great pope self. There high on its throne, lifted up over all our thoughts, self. The spirit of Christian love is the opposite of a selfish spirit. The eighth negative portrayal is that love is not easily angered, or it might be translated easily provoked. Anger in the Bible can be lovely or loveless. The anger of God, he's the most angry person in the Bible, is perfectly righteous because of his omniscience, because of his perfect sense of justice. God's anger is beautiful. It's righteous. It's glorious. And our anger is not. Sinful human anger is something that many pastors have struggled with. And whether it's that they're so frustrated that people aren't responding the way they're supposed to, or whether they think so highly of their own counsel and advice that they are shocked and appalled when people don't listen to them, the angry pastor falls hard. The pastor who's easily provoked, who has a tendency towards retaliation, really goes with this next word, this concept of resentfulness, not provoked, not keeping a record of wrongs, this easily angered, this retaliatory nature needs to be rooted out in ministers who lead with love. It's an example from history. Abraham Lincoln had a contemporary uh, rival lawyer. His name was Edwin Stanton. 
Edwin Stanton was cruel to Lincoln. He had low thoughts of Lincoln. He told the newspaper reporters that Lincoln was a low, cunning clown. He later told a group of journalists that he didn't understand why people would travel to Africa to hunt an ape when there was a perfectly good ape in Springfield, Illinois. It's a peach of a guy. When Lincoln needed a secretary of war, the highest civilian post, he called Edwin Stanton because he was the perfect man for the job. And Goodwin, in her Team of Rivals books, describes that no two people could ever have been more unlike. Lincoln, gracious and humorous and warm. Stanton, cold and always shutting down his opposition. But how well they balanced each other out. And over the course of the war, Stanton came to love President Lincoln. And when he was assassinated, Stanton stood by his bedside and through tears said, there lies the greatest ruler of men this world has ever known. That's just a human example of the power of love when it doesn't retaliate. Pastor, are you easily angered? Are you resentful? That's why it's a qualification for an elder to not be quick-tempered. And that resentfulness goes right along with it. That's an accounting term. It speaks of keeping a record of wrongs. When someone does you wrong, do you mark it down? In ministry, I've been handed an actual three-ring binder before that someone had put together about one of their family members that chronicled everything that they had done wrong. That is not going to help the counseling session. Because love doesn't do it. Love doesn't keep an account. Love has an ability to erase a debt and overlook an offense. And pastors who are so often involved in Matthew 18, in confronting sin, rightfully so, in, in bringing people to a place of recognizing their sin and moving them towards repentance, need to be just as quick to overlook offenses. If you, in your marriage, were to parse every sinful or questionable glance or look, you would never be able to show up at church on Sundays. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love covers, as Peter says, a multitude of sins. And then that final negative word, love is never joyful over wrongdoing. Love has in it a, a holy joy. This love for truth. And that's why we can never allow someone to think for a moment that love could ever be an excuse for sinful indulgence. That love could ever be done, anything could ever be done in the name of love that isn't done in the name of God. 
In other words, if we are to follow God's standards and ways, then that will be the prerequisite for understanding if this action is loving or not. Love is never joyful over wrongdoing. Pastor, how are you? How is your love life? How is your affection for the flock of God? Love is a must, verses one through three. Her leading qualities of patience and kindness should propel us to lead with that same kind of demonstrable love and and then to hear all the things that love will not do, the non-practices of love. And then to bring this passage to a crescendo as the apostle does with these words. Look down at verse six. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And then seven, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Fourth and finally, this is love's tenacious power. Love's tenacious power. Love has a holy joy. It only affirms that which is true. It cannot bear a lie. It cannot bear that which is false. It cannot bear that which is unholy because as love looks towards the future, it has an indestructible element. The Greek word panta, all, is repeated throughout this little section saying that love always does these things. Without fail, love will always protect, love will always trust, love will always hope, and love will always persevere because love never fails. The protection of love. Love always protects means it never tires of support. Love always trusts or always believes all things. This isn't some kind of gullibility or a naive concept that love just buys into a lie or, or is gullible or, or wrongheaded. Love believing all things means that love always trusts, that love never loses faith. It's not that we believe false things or irrational things. We're not credulous, indiscriminate, as one author says. I think of Jesus with the 12. How he saw potential in that unlikely group of fishermen was proof that the Son of God operated with love. He saw them and believed what God could do in them because love believes all things. It protects, it supports, and it trusts that God isn't done. And that's why love always hopes or never exhausts hope. It's not that it hopes in vain. It's not that it hopes in unreal things. Gordon Fee says it this way, Paul does not mean that love always believes the best about everything and everyone, but that love never ceases to have faith. It never loses hope. Love is always hopeful because we know that God can always accomplish something, that God is always working, that even on our trials, we know that these trials have come to us through the very fingers of a loving father. That the goodness of God is a reminder of his ability to work and that there are no hopeless cases. And so love can have this 
optimistic posture towards the future, knowing that God will accomplish everything that he wills to accomplish for his good, for our good and for his glory, that love can hope because we never exhaust in our understanding of what God can accomplish. We don't give up hope. We know that even in the face of our greatest enemy, God will prevail. That's the connection between chapter 13 and chapter 15. To stare death in the face as the apostle does and to say it's just a seed going into the ground is a hard pill to swallow when you've buried your loved ones. But we place them in the ground still in loving hope, knowing that the reason we believe in the resurrection is because we believe in a God of love and a God of power who always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. In other words, God never gives up in his love and we ought not to give up on ours. How this propels us towards the love of God in Jesus. Where else would we go with this chapter? an experiment. Look at verse four and put your name in there. Steve Lawson is patient. I'll do mine. I'm sorry. (laughs) Austin is patient. Austin is kind. Austin does not envy. Come on, do it with me. It's like a charismatic church. Austin is not rude. Austin is not self-seeking. Your name, not mine. (laughs) Austin's not easily angered. Austin keeps no record of wrongs. It's horrible. I mean, that's a disaster. Our love's so imperfect. And if we were to just take this as mere moral requirements or or mere imperatives without understanding the indicative of the gospel that lies under this letter to the Corinthians, the grace of God that appeared to them in chapter one, the wisdom and power of God that appeared to them through the message of the cross that was transforming them. That's what underlies this love. The reason we can move forward in this kind of love or humility or holiness is because of what Jesus has already done at the cross. And so we look at verse four and we remember that Jesus is patient and that Jesus is kind and Jesus does not envy and Jesus does not boast and Jesus is not proud and Jesus is not rude and he is not self-seeking and he is not easily angered and he keeps no record of wrongs and he does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. He always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always perseveres and Jesus never fails. To know the gospel of God's dear son who poured out his life for us on the cross and rose victoriously from the grave is this motivation to know that the reason we can love at all is because he first loved us. So unworthy, so unlovable, despicable and despised but loved by God in Christ. So pastor, 
Let's be faithful. Faithful to love. To lead with love. Alexander Strzok wrote a beautiful book called Leading with Love. He said in it, braggarts build themselves up. Jealous people tear others down. But only loving people build others up. What our churches need is not more cool, stylistic pastors who know more about CrossFit than the cross. What our churches need is not over-preening, stylized, narcissistic marketing gurus who have a good handle on Instagram. What our churches need is shepherds who serve the flock with affection. Love is that core attribute of God, that defining mark of the redeemed. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Reminds us that these come for your faith, greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter roots his affectionate letter to these persecuted Christians in the fact that they have a love for the unseen Christ. And when he writes again in 2 Peter, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and perseverance godliness and godliness brotherly kindness and a brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be faithful to love, to love God, to love his flock, to serve those people. Father, thank you for these men, for bringing them to this conference. I pray that their hearts would be full of encouragement through your word and your spirit. May we never be noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Grant us repentance for when we've ministered apart from love and help us to pursue the more excellent way and to walk in love as our Savior did. In his matchless name, amen.